Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. remember the last time I worked a shift in the ED and didn't see at least one patient with an ankle injury. Of course, all of these patients are relatively straightforward to diagnose and manage because the vast majority will end up being simple ankle sprains or obvious fractures. But there's a good 3 or 4 or 5% of patients who will have a more elusive diagnosis that if not identified early could lead to significant morbidity. On the flip side, if we're super conservative and defensive and we immobilize everyone with an ankle injury, no matter how minor, we're not going to do our patients or our consultants any favors. Just as we shouldn't accept a 3 or 4 or 5 or 6% miss rate for ACS or PE or cauda equina syndrome, we shouldn't accept this high a miss rate for serious ankle injuries either. We can do better. So with this goal in mind, and with the help of Canada's leading ED ortho educator, Aaron Ciel, the brains behind the casted course, the auto ankle rules don't ask us to examine the anterior joint line of the ankle, and Hussein Median, our Jedi Master Orthopedic Surgeon at North York General, basically examination of the deltoid ligament on the ultrasound is probably not very accurate, and it will not add to your knowledge. We're going to cover a general way of thinking about ankle injuries, the limitations of the Ottawa ankle rules, a simplified approach to the ankle x-ray, and the importance of identifying the external rotation mechanism of injury. We're going to cover a few important commonly missed serious ankle injuries like lateral malleolus fractures with a deltoid ligament injury, syndesmosis injuries and telo fractures, the more subtle mesoneuve fractures, And lastly, the sometimes elusive talus fractures, like the snowboarder's fracture and Taylor dome fractures. So without further ado, here's commonly missed ankle injuries on EM cases. A 45-year-old man was running to catch a bus. He rolled his ankle and fell to the ground. He comes in complaining of pain in the lateral ankle. He has difficulty weight-bearing in the emergency department. His lateral malleolus is tender and swollen on exam, and maybe has a bit of tenderness on the medial ankle as well. So let's start with the most important aspects of assessment, the ones that are sometimes short-changed when we're in a rush, the history and physical. So Dr. Cial, what are some general tips and tricks that you use in your history and physical when it comes to ankle injuries, just in general? It's a great point uh, you make, Anton, because I think in many ways, we would never shortchange history and physical in things like chest pain, abdominal pain, other things. But orthopedically, we tend to shortchange it because we often have the x-ray before we even see the patient. And sometimes we don't appreciate the importance of these things. So it's really important to try to understand mechanism. Uh, and the direction of which the force was applied and what happened afterwards. So did they fall from a ladder and injure their ankle? Did they just roll from a height? How far were they? They came down six stairs and turned their ankle. These are really important things to know. Uh, ask them with their other foot, because clearly the injured ankle is going to be too sore. Which foot? Which way did your foot turn? And a real red flag mechanism is if the foot turns out, 
like external rotation, that's the orthopedic equivalent of chest pain going straight through to your back. That's the orthopedic equivalent of sudden onset of worse headache. If we hear those with certain conditions, uh, we know to look for aortic dissection, subarachnoid hemorrhage, that sort of thing. I love that analogy because we're, we're going to be talking, that, that theme is going to come up again and again. The external rotation mechanism right. injury is a key one not to miss. And, and, and if we all appreciate how important it is, we'll make sure we ask. And sometimes patients go, I don't know, I was drunk, I fell down four stairs, I don't know what happened. Okay, fine. Uh, what was the force involved? How high was the force? You also want to know what happened afterwards. If someone said they sprained their ankle or they played, they hurt their ankle and they kept playing for another 20 minutes and then the next day their ankle was sore and swollen, I'm way less worried than the person that turned their ankle in basketball and wasn't able to weight bear afterwards. Also, you want to know, A, are you comparing, like when you compare to the other side, are you comparing to a normal ankle or not? Perhaps they injured the other ankle before and when you check things out, there may be old injuries on the affected ankle or the previous one. So knowing what knowing the quality of their bone, the quality that they've had previous injuries to it is very helpful. Past medical history also don't shortchange. They may have decreased sensation from either diabetes, alcoholism, back surgery, whatever it happens to be. Uh, and if they have abnormal sensation and they have not that much pain, it may be a worrisome case. So again, it's important to understand their past history. These things don't take a lot of time. They're really important pieces of the history to, to nail down. The other thing is I can point out after Aaron's history taking, then comes to physical examination of this specific patient. On the physical perspective, you definitely first look, inspect like anything else. You see the swelling, you see ecchymosis, you see evidence of bruising. Those are all helpful. As a matter of fact, I can tell you a simple example. If you see bruising in the instep, okay, of the foot, it's probably characteristic of a Lisfranc injury. So it helps just looking at the ankle, seeing, for example, bruising right on the medial aspect of the arch of the foot, that is probably characteristic of a Lisfranc ligamentous injury. That's number one. Number two is even with a severe ankle sprain, uh, for example, this patient that you are trying to uh, describe over here, you you might have a small open wound or laceration on the lateral aspect of the ankle. That small open wound might not bleed very actively, but it is of significance because it, most of the time it communicates with the joint. So you can't just say, oh, okay, it's a simple tiny laceration on the lateral. You won't see it very commonly. It's very uncommon, but when you see it, it is of significance. So uh, the skin might have a tiny tear, just like a small laceration from a surgical knife on the lateral aspect of an ankle sprain. That most probably goes into the joint, and that definitely needs special attention because it needs, the joint needs to be washed out. You know, it's very rare for a patient with an ankle injury to have ischemia in the foot because the ankle has, you know, three vessels supplying the foot. So if you have ischemia in the context of an ankle injury, always think proximally. It's very rare to have an ankle injury with ischemia per se. So, you know, you want to do the neurovascular exam, you want to do the sensory exam, you want to do the motor exam, you want to make sure your compartments are fine. You want to make sure that there is no significant pain out of proportion. If you have dysesthesia in the context of an ankle injury, you want to make sure it's not suggestive of a compartment syndrome that is pending. And at the end of the day, if you have suspicion, you've got a very tight compartment pain and passive dorsiflexion, and you are still, you know, doubtful whether a compartment syndrome is present or absent, just take the compartment pressure monitor measure your compartments. These are 
I think, essential things that we tend to probably overlook in the context of simpler injuries. But if you want to practice safe, I think these are good points to pay attention to. Yeah, lots of great pearls in there. You mentioned ankle sprains. I want to just start before we get into all the fractures. Let's say this patient has a normal x-ray and they're tender over the anterior talofibular ligament and you diagnose them with an ankle sprain. I find it hard clinically just to figure out what degree of ankle sprain there is. And then with most patients, you know, you give them rice instructions and, and you're done. Which patients with ankle sprain require more than just rice instructions? So a, a couple of points on that. One is typically when you look at the x-ray, you may not see a bony abnormality. But, but if you look carefully, there will usually be soft tissue swelling, which will be very helpful in suggesting that there is an injury to the lateral side of the ankle. So we, we sometimes as generalists don't pay much attention to the soft tissue of the x-ray, but that can be quite helpful to us. Uh, if you have an isolated lateral injury – I'm not sure we need – like you can look at the patient. You can get an idea of the force. You can see how much swelling that's there and that may help guide you. Clinically to try to say is their anterior drawer loose or not, I don't think that's a very useful test to be honest with you in eMERGE. It's difficult to do. They have to be quite relaxed and even if you said they had a complete terror of their ATFL, their treatment probably wouldn't be any different acutely in the emergency department. Uh, it really depends upon the patient and how they manage. So, so RICE is a great mnemonic to use. One needs to be careful that the R, it's better off to use it for, instead of saying rest because a patient hears rest, they think don't move it, don't use it, and they over-immobilize. They tend to overprotect. And I think a better thing, which I learned from one of our physiotherapists, is that R stands for restricted activity. And when you say to the patient restricted activity, now the onus is on us to explain to the patient how to restrict their activity. And typically for an isolated lateral sprain, it's like let pain be your guide. Get up and around. Let them appreciate there is good pain. There's bad pain. You're allowed to walk on it. So what will allow a patient to do that? You, want to, you, want, you don't want them to be over-immobilized and get stiff. You don't want them to be non-weight-bearing. They can lose proprioception. If you immobilize them too much, they have a risk of DVT. All these things are concerns. So you want to keep range of motion and strength. So look at them and see. Sometimes it means it's an air stirrup, just a little U-shaped brace, which is very helpful and protective. If they're a younger patient, they may be able to manage with crutches and an air stirrup, and then with a few days start to walk. Uh, if they're really uncomfortable, they may need a foam walker and plus or minus crutches. So one of these boot walkers. But at least then they can take it out of this. They can get it moving. I think that's far preferable to immobilizing them with plaster. I think we have a tendency to over-immobilize them. You put them in plaster, it's more difficult. They're not moving. They're more at risk of DVT. They get stiffness. They lose proprioception. There are many things that happen by over-immobilizing them. So it really looks at the patient, their pain threshold, what they're able to do. And then it'll either be, typically would give them either an air stirrup, some sort of a immobilization device that allows them the plantar flex, dorsiflex, that protects them from inversion, uh, or a boot if they simply can't manage an air stirrup. There are a few other points that are helpful. If a patient comes in with an ankle sprain and can't wait to bear, that's a red flag to me. Because usually ankle sprains, usually patients tend to weight bear, but they limp significantly because they're in pain. If a patient can't weight bear, then you have to think, is it really only an ankle sprain or is it a high ankle sprain? Because a high ankle sprain in terms of presentation, usually patients, if they can't give you the mechanism of the injury, which is usually in the high ankle sprain external rotation, they just come with a swollen ankle and they can't put any weight on it, you should think twice. So that's 
where the physical examination again comes into perspective because when you touch around the distal aspect of the fibula where the anterior talofibular ligament, the calcaneofibular, and the posterior talofibular ligaments are, they're tender over that area. But we sometimes tend to forget to examine between the tibia and the fibula above the plafond do, do the squeeze test where you squeeze the fibula and the tibia together, and that provokes the pain. These are signs and symptoms that the patient might have a high ankle sprain because the treatment literally differs between the two. As Aaron pointed out, the treatment for a lateral ankle sprain, whether it is mild, moderate or severe, or the way they've graded a one, two, or three, which I don't care about that grading personally, because I think if you've got an ankle sprain, you've got an ankle sprain, and the treatment is functional treatment, meaning putting it in a stirrup, weight-bearing is tolerated, range of motion, et cetera, okay? But in order to make that diagnosis, you've got to rule out the other possibilities to make sure, so there are factors that are going to help you. The other thing that you should probably be vigilance about is to make sure that the patient does not have any bony tenderness over the talus or the adjacent calcaneus because they present with lateral-sided pain. They might have a fracture of the lateral process of the talus. Usually, ankle sprains don't have tenderness over the talus, or they might have tenderness over the distal aspect of the calcaneus because the anterior process of the calcaneus might be broken, which you will not appreciate on plain x-rays. So I think a lateral ankle sprain, sure, you will, 90% of the time, you're right, but you definitely have to make sure that you're not missing the other aspects of diagnosis before you recommend functional treatment. Okay, a little review here. On history, as I'm sure you've all heard before, it's mechanism, mechanism, mechanism. If you can nail down that mechanism of injury, half your job is done. And remember that a red flag mechanism is external rotation. Just like we consider subarachnoid hemorrhage in the patient with an abrupt onset of severe headache, we should consider serious ankle injuries in the patient with an external rotation mechanism. Ask about what happened after the injury. Were they able to continue in their sport or were they carried off the field and haven't been able to weight bear since? Ask about injuries to the contralateral side that you're comparing against and don't skip the past medical history. Things like diabetic neuropathy and back surgery can vastly alter your patient's perception and lead you astray. So that's the history. What about physical exam? We'll look for swelling and bruising, especially in the arch of the foot. That would be characteristic of a Lisfranc injury. And look for tiny tears in the skin, because that might represent an open fracture. You don't want to miss that. And don't skip your neurovascular exam. If you find ischemic changes in the foot, it's very unlikely to be due to an ankle injury look proximally for the source. And finally, for the physical exam, do a quick check of the compartments. Look for pain out of proportion, dysesthesia, etc., to make sure you aren't dealing with a compartment syndrome. Now, before you decide that a patient's ankle injury is a simple ankle sprain, think about ankle sprain mimics. Remember that patients with ankle sprains should be able to weight bear at least a little bit. If they absolutely can't weight bear, then you need to think about more serious ankle sprain mimics. High ankle sprains, that's syndesmosis injuries, which we'll get into detail a little bit later in the podcast. Lateral process of the talus fractures, anterior process calcaneus fractures, etc. Well, if you do rule out the nasties and arrive at a diagnosis of ankle sprain, then how do you treat them? Well, 
The degree of ankle sprain doesn't really matter, and the anterior drawer test is pretty useless in helping you decide how bad the sprain is. You can advise RICE for most ankle sprains, but remember that R stands for restricted activity, not rest. Tell the patients to let pain be their guide and ask them to do some range of motion exercises. They may need an air stirrup, U-shaped splint, or a foam boot, but avoid full immobilization with plaster of Paris and crutches. That can just lead to DVTs and stiffness and other problems. Next, we're going to talk about a general approach that can help us decide whether an ankle injury is stable or unstable. talk a little bit about a general approach to ankle injuries. When it comes to classification systems for ankle injuries, I don't find the Weber classification very useful at all. Uh, And I think it's important to have some kind of conceptual understanding of ankle injuries. And that's when I I discovered this uh, closed ring classification system. This closed ring classification system really struck me as a useful way of thinking about how stable or unstable an ankle injury is. So basically, it asks us to think of the ankle as a ring of bone and ligaments surrounding the talus. So if you can imagine for a moment your talus in the middle and surrounding it is a ring starting at 12 o'clock consisting of the tibial plafond, that's French for ceiling, uh, the distal tibia, then the lateral malleolus, the lateral ligaments, the calcaneus, and then the medial or deltoid ligaments, And then finally, the the medial malleolus. So if you can think of that ring, that's what this classification system asks you to do. And if you have a second right now, go and look at the image on the show notes on the EMCases app or or the website uh, to really get that image in your head. So Dr. Cial, can you just help our listeners understand the value of this closed ring classification system and how it can help us predict whether a patient has an unstable or, or stable ankle injury? Right. So as a little schematic, it's a good idea to think of it in that way. There are some pitfalls and over-reliance on it, but it is a good way to think of it. If you Essentially, the concept being is that if you only injure in one spot, it's a stable injury, but if you injure it two, then it's potentially unstable. In the years that I just had full-time emerged before I started working with Dr. Median and, and the remainder of the orthopedic surgeons at the hospital, I didn't appreciate how fussy the ankle joint really is. And if the ankle joint shifts by one millimeter, totally messes up your ankle mechanics. And if your mechanics are messed up, you get arthritis down the road and all kinds of bad sequelae from a very small shift. Surgeons are very fussy and making sure an ankle is in perfect position. Therefore, if there's a disruption in two places, it's more likely for for the, the distal fragment, let's say, to slide over, for the, the tail is to shift out of place. So this is why this, this scheme uh, makes sense. If you only injure in one spot, let's say the lateral malleolus, typically, let, let's say Weber A, like below the level of the, of the joint, uh, or the lateral ankles, and lateral ankle sprain, uh, there's, there's only one disruption of that ring, and it's considered to be a stable injury. Patients can wait bear on it. If, however, you've got a, a fracture, let's say a, a Weber B, 
So it comes out at the level of the joint, uh, an oblique fracture, and they're tender on the medial side, either it be a medial malleolus fracture or a deltoid injury, something like that. You can say, oh, well, it's injured in two spots. If they got up and walked and it shifted by even one millimeter, patients will mess up their ankle mechanics. And now you can see how two disruptions of the ring uh, are more worrisome. Things can shift. And, and this is really kind of the general concept behind it. So as a general scheme, I think it's very helpful to consider it this way. So you had just mentioned the Weber B, the oblique fracture that's at the level of the ankle joint in combination with a medial injury. So let's get back to the case because this is where sometimes we can really miss things. So in this case of our middle-aged man who was running for the bus and rolled his ankle, you do an x-ray and it shows a classic Weber B fracture of the lateral malleolus. So based on this classification system, uh, you want to look for that second injury to see if it's unstable or not. So how do you decide if a Weber B is stable or unstable? Well, this is a very difficult question to answer. I wish there were easy rules about it. The only way you can decide whether it's stable or unstable is taking them to the OR and performing an external rotation stress test and getting x-rays under fluoro. Okay, that's the most valid way to figure out whether they're stable or unstable. It's very so, practical for the emergency doctor. Yeah, so that <laughs> is not you, practical. We're going to take you to the OR right now. <laughs> yeah, and examine it. <laughs> that is not practical. There are some uh, special views that have been described in the literature to assess stability, but again, those are not practical points for the emergency physician to perform. In my view... As Aaron pointed out, if you have tenderness over the medial aspect of the ankle and you've got a fracture of the fibula, a Weber B that is undisplaced, I would place a plaster of Paris splints for the patient and tell them to go to the fracture clinic, non-weight bearing, without putting any weight on their ankle. Now, there comes the scenario where you've got a Weber B which is totally undisplaced, you've got no medial tenderness, okay? Those fractures can still be unstable, but they're less common for them to be unstable. So how can we assess stability in those fractures? In those patients, you can give them a brace and you can let them walk on it. And then they will come to the fracture clinic. And if they are unstable, they will displace. So when I see them a week down the road in the fracture clinic, I'll get a repeat imaging of their ankle. And if it's displaced, then it's reasonable for me to operate on them. If it's undisplaced, then they go on with functional treatment with weight-bearing accelerated in their boot. For me, it's a simple approach. So in my practice, when I see a Weber B that is undisplaced with no medial tenderness, and has been immobilized in the emergency department with non-weight bearing in a cast, when they come to the fracture clinic, I take off the cast and I obtain weight bearing views of their ankle. And when I obtain weight bearing views, if there is any tailor tilt, if there is any tailor shift, these are all bad things. They will be classified as unstable. And I will treat them surgically. And if it, there is no evidence of a tilt or a shift and it's a stable fraction weight-bearing views, then I can treat them with weight-bearing as tolerated in a boot. That's the way I approach them. 
from an eMERGE point of view, this is one of those instances, again, where you only disrupt in one part of the ring. You just have a Weber B, a lateral ankle injury, and if they have no medial tenderness, as Dr. Median says, occasionally these can shift. So we don't know. So this is one of the, one of the pitfalls of just relying on that ring system. What's important from an eMERGE point of view, I think, is recognizing that isolated Weber Bs, nothing on the medial side, potential, have the potential to shift. And if you tell a patient that, that we let you walk on it and it'll declare itself, like if you pass the test or not, there's a chance you get an operation by walking on it, then it doesn't look like you missed it. But if you just say to them, oh, you got a lateral ankle, you're fine, walk on it, and they find out a week later they need an operation, it'll be their feeling that something got missed in eMERGE. So if you're comfortable in making that assessment and determination and eMERGE, then I think it's totally appropriate. Let the patient know, though, there is a chance this might need an operation for these Weber Bs with nothing on the medial side. But if there's a Weber B and they're tender on the medial side, I think we should all be more careful with those because those those have a chance to, to heal non-operatively, potentially. We'll sort of see. They'll be followed up. They're more likely to be surgical, more likely to slip, more likely to get a surgical opinion. But you still will immobilize. I think they would be immobilized and not be weight-bearing. I think we're saying the same thing. That's exactly the same. So just to review there, we're talking about undisplaced Weber B fractures. The Weber Bs are the ones that are at the level of the ankle joint. They're an oblique fracture of the fibula. And those Weber Bs that have no medial involvement at all, you don't suspect medial involvement, they don't have pain medially, they're not tender medially, those non-displaced Weber Bs can be placed into a foam boot, for example, and have partial weight bearing with tight follow-up with the uh, orthopedic surgeon within a week, but they need to understand that there's a small but significant possibility that their ankle will shift and eventually require surgery, although it's uncommon. The patients with an undisplaced Weber B fracture who do have any suspicion of medial involvement, if they're tender, swollen on the medial side, and you think they might have a deltoid ligament injury there, uh, you should consider those unstable because a larger percentage of those will shift and require surgery. And so those patients should be non-weight-bearing in a plaster Paris back slab splint. So I think that's very well said. Two points I want to make about that. One is we need to be careful when we examine the ankle. The auto ankle rules only ask us to examine the posterior six centimeters of the distal fibula and the distal tibia. And then we've actually taken these really good ankle rules and we've converted them to be an ankle exam. And a lot of times we don't examine the patient underneath the tibia, the medial mal, to actually feel they have deltoid tenderness. So when we talk about medial discomfort, it could be like the bony, the bony aspect may be non-tender altogether and their pain and discomfort is actually felt over the deltoid. So it, it really is important that, that as clinicians, we examine them properly. We tend to stop our exam where the rules tell us to examine. And this is one of the reasons we miss this injury. So very important to examine the medial side of the ankle thoroughly. Medial mal plus the deltoid ligament, which is inferior to the medial malleolus. Uh, second point, just so that no one tries to get off track with this, like the point of having a weight-bearing x-ray at a week is very helpful. I would suggest the weight-bearing x-rays, if you tried it in eMERGE, like don't, don't translate that to do it in eMERGE because patients are in too much pain and you get a, kind of a poor man's weight-bearing x-ray and their foot was on the ground, but they really weren't taking weight on it. So if you try to do a weight-bearing x-ray in eMERGE and thinking, okay, I'll, I'll use Dr. Median's tip a week earlier and see if I can get them out and, and I can make a declaration early, you may not be able to do it because you can't rely on a weight-bearing x-ray and eMERGE usually. How about the use of ultrasound for assessing the deltoid ligament? 
I mean, you'd think theoretically at least stick the ultrasound on there and you can see that the deltoid ligament is intact, then maybe you're less worried. And if you stick the ultrasound on there and the deltoid ligament is obviously torn, that's going to make you more worried that it's an unstable fracture. Uh, is there any value for that in the emergency department, do you think? The deltoid ligament is a complex structure. It's got superficial deltoid ligament, the deep deltoid ligament. It is very difficult to assess the entire deltoid ligament with an ultrasound. So basically, examination of the deltoid ligament under ultrasound is probably not very accurate, and it will not add to your knowledge. Because if part of the deltoid is torn and the other part is not torn, we still don't know whether it is going to ha imply any medial stability or not to the ankle. So I don't think it's a valuable tool. All right. So that's ultrasound. We're going to talk in detail about an approach to x-rays of the ankle. But when it comes to assessing the medial side, whether it's stable or not, there's the Taylor tilt that you had mentioned, uh, which I think is worth knowing about from an emergency perspective, because if you measure the Taylor tilt and it's off, then you know that that's an unstable fracture. Um, so in this patient, this 45-year-old guy was running for a bus, Weber B, and you're trying to assess the, the medial side. Dr. Seal, could you just go through for our listeners how you'd assess the Taylor tilt and how that's valuable in this kind of situation? So essentially, a Taylor tilt is looking either at the AP or the mortis view, and the the Taylor dome. If you draw a line across the Taylor dome, it should be parallel to a line that runs across just above it, around the tibial plafond, the ceiling of the tibia. They should be two parallel lines. And if you find if, if there's deltoid ligament injury or medial malfracture, the talus immediately can drift down. You now have non-parallel lines. And if you see non-parallel lines, that's a suggestion of having a medial injury. The issue, though, is that you can have parallel lines and still have a medial injury. So if it's abnormal, it's helpful. Uh, if it's normal, it doesn't rule out a medial injury. So here on the imaging, since we're on the topic, apart from the tilt, look at the shift. How do you look at the shift? Look, look at the medial clear space. So if your medial clear space has widened, which is a very, very common finding that our emerge physicians inform us about, that is suggestive that you probably need surgical intervention. So the tilt, the shift, are very important variables to look at under imaging. The medial clear space is a very important variable. And I think we're going to point to some other radiographic findings in the syndesmotic injuries when we review them. I think you're right. I think in general, emergency physicians are pretty good at looking at the medial clear space, but it's that Taylor tilt that's a little bit trickier to look for that I think we really should be. Right. And, and, and to... to Speak about that medial clear space again. There, there, there's a, there's two, there's two AP views at the ankle that are taken. One's a straight AP view, and the second is usually taken with the foot in about twenty degrees of internal rotation, and that's called the mortise view. Sometimes you get a better look at the medial clear space on the AP. Sometimes you get it on the the mortise view. It all depends on how it's shot. You want a nice clean look down sort of the channel between the medial malleolus and the talus. And you measure that distance and compare it to the distance from the tibial plafond to the Taylor dome, and they should be equal. Realize if it shifts by one millimeter, 
patients will actually maldistribute their weight by about 42%, which is a huge number. And about 85 or 90% of the weight is taken through the, through the, the tibio-tailor joint uh, as they walk. Uh, only about 10 or 15% is taken through the fibula. So if, this is really important to ankle mechanics. It, it kind of underlies the point about if patients have a, like an undisplaced bimalleolar fracture in perfect position, the treatment is surgical because if it shifted one millimeter while they're healing, they're going to mess up their ankle mechanics. So the, the ankle joint looks pretty simple on an x-ray. It looks like it's a flat surface of the talus that comes up against a flat surface of the tibia. It is way more complicated than that. And, and when we appreciate that, we will make sure every time we look after someone with an ankle injury that we pay really close attention. Time for another review. First, the closed ring classification system. I love the system because it's simple. Think of your ankle as a closed ring of bones and ligaments with the talus right in the middle. Any disruption of two spots of this ring probably means that you're dealing with an unstable ankle injury. Even one millimeter shift of the ankle mortis can make an ankle unstable with serious sequelae. The one big exception to the closed ring classification rule is the undisplaced Weber B fracture of the lateral malleolus without any suspicion of another injury of the ring. In particular, no medial ankle pain or tenderness. So one approach to this injury would be to backslab and make non-weight-bearing all patients with a Weber B fracture. But another approach that Dr. Median and Dr. Cial are suggesting is to put the patient in a foam boot without crutches have them weight-bearing as tolerated, and have them follow up in a week in an orthopedic clinic. At that time, they'll either remain stable, so you've saved them having to be completely immobilized, or they'll shift and become unstable requiring surgery. Just be sure to warn them that this might happen. And when it comes to warnings, there's one about the otherwise fantastic Ottawa ankle rules. The thing is, the Ottawa ankle rules should not be used as an excuse for skipping the examination of the rest of the ankle. Because you can miss things like high ankle sprains, nerve fractures, and deltoid ligament injuries that are not covered by the Ottawa ankle rules. And what about POCUS to find the elusive deltoid ligament injury that might require surgery? In Dr. Median's opinion, POCUS is not useful to rule in or rule out deltoid ligament injuries in the ED, but what is useful is scrutinizing the x-ray for the usual medial clear space widening that most of us look for regularly. Again, even one millimeter shift is significant. And then there's the Taylor tilt, which is a bit more difficult to detect. To assess for Taylor tilt, look on the AP and mortise views. Draw lines across the tibial plafond, that's the distal tibia, and across the Taylor dome. They should be parallel. Non-parallel lines represent Taylor tilt, and that's an unstable fracture. We'll have some nice images on the app and the website for you for that. Now on to the next case. A 22-year-old football player is tackled on the field and limps off the field with support from his coach. He comes in complaining of diffuse ankle pain. When you ask him about the mechanisms of injury, he's kind of unsure. He just remembers feeling severe ankle pain after the tackle. On exam, his anterior ankle is a bit swollen, definitely tender. You send him off for an x-ray, and you can't identify any obvious fractures. 
You go back and try to get him to weight bear, but he refuses to put weight on his heel and he's walking kind of like on his toes on the affected side. You give him a tensor bandage, give him rice instructions and tell him to follow up with his family doctor in a week. So Dr. CL, what more serious injuries than a simple ankle sprain are you thinking about in this case? And what would you look for on physical in this patient to make sure that you aren't missing something more serious than a simple ankle sprain? Right. So excellent, excellent questions, uh, Dr. Hellman. The, when, again, mechanism is very important. So I tried to see if I could pin him down. If he had a cleated shoe, more likely his foot would have turned out. And external rotation is a red flag for, uh, especially as you identify he has anterior pain, uh, this certainly could be a syndesmosis injury. It's the anterolateral aspect of the ankle. The syndesmosis is a high ankle sprain. It's the connection of the distal tibia and the distal fibula. A little confusion uh, sort of creeps into our, our, the minds of eMERGE docs. Sometimes we hear of a high-grade ankle sprain, which often means a third-degree lateral ankle sprain, and that's a totally separate injury. So a high-grade ankle sprain, a bad lateral sprain, is totally different than a high ankle sprain, which is a syndesmosis injury, which is an injury to the distal tibiofibular ligaments, typically on the, the anterior aspect of them. What you would find, and credit to this eMERGE doc for actually examining the anterior joint line of the ankle. Again, just as the medial side, the deltoid ligament injury gets missed because the auto ankle rules just ask us to touch the, the medial mal and the lateral mal posteriorly. Equally, the auto ankle rules don't ask us to examine the anterior joint line of the ankle. Just below the anterior joint line is the talus. Just above it is the distal tibia. So in kids with T-low fractures, this is a place to look. And then just as you go a little lateral, the connection between the distal tibia and the distal fibula above the level of the joint, that's where the syndesmosis sits. So they can have tenderness there. It's a little tricky sometimes in eMERGE to be able to isolate the pain that it's just the ATF. They'll often have some lateral discomfort as well. So confirmatory tests that are of value in eMERGE, one is called a midfibular squeeze test, where you just take your hand up along the midfibula, you give it a good squeeze. What does this do? Midfibula it gets pulled in proximally and distally, the fibula splays out. If you squeeze mid-fibula and they have some pain distally along the fibula, that would be a suggestion that they actually have a high ankle sprain. The other thing you can do is you can take the foot and just have their foot sitting in neutral or even dorsiflex it a little bit and passively externally rotate. Just try to turn the foot out. That'll do nothing for a lateral ankle sprain. That actually reduces the length of the of a lateral ankle injury makes it actually feel more comfortable typically. But if you had a, if you had a syndesmosis injury, passive external rotation is quite uncomfortable. That's the mechanism by which they injure it. So it's another thing you can do in eMERGE if you suspect a high ankle sprain. Yeah. My understanding is that the, the squeeze test, I understand that that actually has a really high specificity. Like one study I read was quoting a specificity of 94%. And in terms of also the physical, with this patient, the doc noticed that uh, the patient was walking on his tippy toe on that side. Is that sort of toe walking? I mean, I've, I've read that that's sort of a, a typical finding in a syndesmosis injury. Do you find that useful? I sure do. I mean, uh, as mentioned before, lateral ankle sprains can usually weight bear with a limp, but uh, high ankle sprains usually have difficulty putting their heel down and they tend to walk on their tiptoes and tend not to weight bear. And what what is the fuss about these high ankle sprains? Why why do we talk about them? Because 
If a patient comes into your emergency department with a simple lateral ankle sprain, you say the prognosis is good. Go home. You'll be able to return to sports within four to six weeks. No, no problem. While you've got a high ankle sprain, suddenly the prognosis changes. I, 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 when I, whenever I see high ankle sprains, I barely see them go back to sports earlier than four to six months. And I'm, I'm serious about that. In young people, they barely can go back to sports in four to six months. Well, that's significant. That is significant. The other thing is the treatment is different. The treatment is you literally have to unload them. They can't wait burn. So it's not a functional treatment anymore. So, so the major emphasis is on the treatment, number one, on the prognosis, number two, and number three, as Dr. Sayal pointed out, when you have that anterior tenderness, you definitely need to get x-rays because the syndesmosis has bony attachments, and sometimes they have avulsion off those attachments from the tibia. They have avulsions off uh, the anterior or the posterior aspect of the tibia where the syndesmosis ligaments attach. Some of those need to be fixed. You have to make sure you don't have associated more proximal fibular fracture, similar to a mesonov. That's the way they present, similar to a high ankle sprain. So those are indications to look into with a proper physical examination and at the same time imaging. So that's where the Ottawa ankle rules can definitely misguide you if you don't examine the anterior aspect or the anterolateral aspect of the ankle. And, and the, the other important part of mechanism sometimes is if someone's playing ice hockey, they didn't have a lateral ankle sprain, like their foot's in a boot. Someone's skiing, someone's having a, you know, is snowboarding. When their foot's in a boot, they don't invert their ankle like they do in basketball or tennis or some other sport. So typically what happens if a player goes, you know, skate first into the boards, their foot turns out, extra rotation, classic mechanism for syndesmosis injury. Or if it extends beyond, it could be this so-called maisonneuve type fracture, which I suspect we're going to talk about uh, in a coming case. Uh, but but just the mechanism again. So if anything happens in a boot, in an ankle, like a, in, a, in a hockey skate, that's going to raise your index's suspicion that this is a more significant injury than just a lateral ankle sprain. The Sayal boot rule. I love that. <laughs> All right. So when it comes to clues to picking up syndesmosis injuries, any external rotation or eversion mechanism should raise your suspicion, especially if they're complaining of anterior ankle pain. Um, if they come in toe walking, that can sometimes be a clue. Uh, the squeeze test where you s squeeze the mid tibia and fibula together and that gives you pain in the anterior ankle, that has quite a high specificity. That would be pretty convincing of a syndesmosis injury if you find it. And then finally, the external rotation test can be helpful too. Let's go to the x-ray now. This patient apparently had a normal x-ray on first review. You know, I think it's important to have a, a systematic approach to reading any x-ray, but it's especially important for ankle x-rays so that, so that you don't miss these subtle, potentially devastating injuries that Dr. Median was referring to just a moment ago. So Dr. Median, can you just run through for us a systematic approach to reading ankle x-rays? And again, if you've got the EMCases app handy or you're on the website, take a look at the images while Dr. Median's going through how to read these x-rays. The x-ray principles are quite difficult for you to remember all the numbers because at the end of the day, as an emergency physician, You've got so many things to address. I don't think you might forget the numbers that we literally put our hats on and say, okay, this syndesmotic injury is present or not. 
So I think, to be honest with you, a simple rule is to look at the congruency of the ankle joint and see if there is any Taylor shift, if there's any Taylor tilt. Now, if we want to be more specific, sure, you can look at the AP view. You can look at the clear space at, on the antral-lateral as we have the X-ray. If the clear space is more than five millimeters in an AP view, you suggest that there might be evidence of the incompetency of the syndesmotic ligament and the interosseous membrane. Or if you see that the overlap is less than 10 millimeters, then you might suggest that there is evidence of instability. But these are things that are quite difficult, in my opinion, for the emergency physician. I don't expect them to know that. The only thing I expect them to know is that whether the tibiotalar joint is congruent or it's not congruent, meaning whether the talus has shifted, tilted, which shows evidence of incongruency, and that has implications in treatment. So just to clarify here, the clear space that Dr. Median's talking about is the tibiofibular clear space that we look at for assessing syndesmosis injuries or high ankle sprains, not the medial clear space that we were talking about earlier with regards to the ankle mortis symmetry. So the tibiofibular clear space is measured one centimeter above the tibial plafond, and at that level, you measure the distance between the cortex of the medial tibia and the cortex of the medial fibula. We'll have some pictures on the app and the website. So if this clear space is more than five millimeters, there's probably a significant syndesmosis injury. And while you're there looking at the tibiofibular clear space on the AP view, check whether there's the normal 10 millimeter overlap between the fibula and the tibia. If the overlap is less than 10 millimeters, suspect a syndesmosis injury. Now, these findings are sometimes difficult to assess. And so Dr. Amedian is suggesting that you don't have to know these, but I think you'd look like a rock star if you could pick these up on the x-ray and be pretty sure that someone has a syndesmosis injury. If you want to keep things more simple in your approach to reading ankle x-rays like Dr. Median suggesting, it's really, again, all about the congruity of the ankle mortis, the medial clear space and the tailor tilt. If these are off, again, you're dealing with an unstable injury. And if I can just add one other point here, this again... You know, there's all the auto ankle rules, which our nursing colleagues know and other colleagues who may order the x-rays in ambulatory before we go and see the patient. And what ends up happening is we see the x-ray before we see the patient. And and we've got this all backwards. And we need to tell the patient, I know you had an x-ray done, but if I hear your story and examine you, I can look at your x-ray better. And that's the order in which it should happen. Looking at the x-ray before you see the patient is fraught with all kinds of problems because we'll dismiss all kinds of injuries because we think that x-ray looks normal. And we will miss these subtle little clues. So it's really important that we hammer home the history and physical importance and then use the test, the x-ray, to help sort of refine what you think based on history and physical. It's not the other way around. Yeah. I mean, we could just put every emergency department patient through a full body MRI as they come through (laughs) triage. (laughs) Sure. Absolutely. And then have a computer diagnose them. Right. And we could go and drink coffee in the back room. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. So, Dr. Median, let's say in this case, you didn't send the patient home with rice and follow up with their family doctor, and you did identify that there's a syndesmosis injury. 
what's the appropriate ED management for a patient with a suspected syndesmosis injury? So my expectation is from the emergency physician, a plaster, a Paris splint with crutches, non-weight bearing, and referral to the fracture clinic for the high ankle sprain. A percentage of these patients with high ankle sprain end up going to the OR and having their syndesmosis, literally not their syndesmosis fixed, but putting a positional screw and reducing the tibiofibular joint. So that's my opinion is that in these cases, it is reasonable to put them in a plaster Paris as opposed to a boot that costs 200 bucks and sending them to the clinic because we tend to treat these patients with high ankle sprains with CAS immobilization actually more than functional treatments. So those are great points. But an important thing, again, though, is to make sure that we do try to separate. Like the, like the syndesmosis injury is far less common. So we shouldn't just make sure from an eMERGE point of view that we don't get overly sort of fearful of a syndesmosis injury and then treat every lateral ankle sprain as a possible syndesmosis and immobilize like the majority of patients. Still be discriminatory based on your history, your physical, what do you think has happened to the patient, confirmatory tests, whether it be midfibular squeeze, passive external rotation, where is their tenderness? Put this thing together and still with your then with your clinical judgment, decide if you think it's much more likely to be a the less common high ankle sprain, by all means, immobilize and close follow-up with, with specialists. And if you think, no, I'm happy this is a lateral, simple lateral ankle sprain, an uncomplicated lateral ankle sprain, uh, then we'll go the more, the, the route where you can put in a removable splint, they can be ambulatory, walk on it. St- still use your clinical judgment to decide. It's, it's an important feature as opposed to just getting a little afraid of missing the uncommon syndesmosis injury. Just keep it in mind. Just for completion out of academic interests, syndesmotic injuries, depending on the source you look at, is only 1% to 10% of ankle sprains. On to the next case. A 12-year-old boy comes in limping and complaining of diffuse ankle pain. He was playing basketball with his friends. While running down the court, his foot somehow got caught on his friend's foot and forced into external rotation. On exam, he's tender and swollen in the anterior ankle. Sounds not too different than the previous case, eh? So, Dr. CL, before we go on with the case, this sounds pretty similar to our football player. Is this another syndesmosis injury, or are you thinking about other injuries in this in this case? Well, again, you know, children aren't just little adults, so it's important to think of them as different because of their growth plates. And external rotation in this age group, girls 10 to 14, boys a little bit older, as this kid is, he's 12. Boys' growth plates tend to close a little later. That's why the age groups are a little different. Certainly on your radar has to be this possible T-low fracture. So a T-low fracture is an uncommon injury. The mechanism, external rotation, again, the worrisome, the, the, the worrisome features when you hear external rotation, your, your antenna should go up. And, and again, you know, kudos to the doc for examining and finding their tender over the anterior joint line. It's a missed part of the ankle exam. So the anterior joint line is tender. This is essentially a type of a syndesmosis equivalent in a child, but when, when the, you know, the chain gets pulled on, the ligament is relatively stronger. The growth plate through the distal tibia is 
relatively weaker, and this is how the fracture occurs. So around the age of 10, 11, 12, the distal tibial growth plate starts to fuse. It fuses from the medial side and then closes over towards the lateral side. So the lateral side is open, which means weaker. And then this, this, when this force comes, this external rotation force, it, it comes across the, the distal tibia through the physis and then goes down into the joint. So it becomes a Salter 3. But just hearing mechanism, external rotation, child in this age group, 10 to 14, 10 to 15 years of age, examine the anterior joint line. Very important. This is commonly missed. I think the ankle fractures in the age group we're talking about, 10 to 14, seem to be a bit more complicated because of the patterns of the fracture and telo fractures and triplane fractures. So they definitely deserve more attention in terms of examination imaging because uh, they do have implications, specifically when we talk about Salter-Harris fractures that involve the joint and if they cause incongruency in the articular surface, there's no remodeling potential for those patients. So they definitely need surgical treatment. The other thing is that in Young individuals, healing process is much quicker. Therefore, it's more reasonable to get to those patients in a more timely fashion than adult individuals where you can probably still perform an open reduction within two weeks with no major significant consequences. While in a younger patient, by two weeks, it will be a very difficult open reduction slash close reduction and internal fixation. Dr. Suyel, it's my understanding that the Ottawa ankle rules have been validated in children, and this 12-year-old boy would seemingly fulfill criteria for not getting an x-ray. You know, he could weight bear, he wasn't tender in the lateral malleolus or the medial malleolus. How can you explain this? Well, I would suggest most people have a T-low fracture won't be walking on it. It's going to be two sorts, the distal tibial fracture. So I, I think that would be less likely. The auto ankle rules have been validated in kids, but what they found was they actually, or like it wasn't as beneficial as in adults because most kids would be non-weight-bearing. So therefore, you wouldn't, on the basis of non-weight-bearing, they were getting x-rays. Um, there is a separate set of rules, which is done both in Toronto and in Boston, called the low-risk ankle rules, which are better rules. They actually don't differentiate whether it's the distal fibula or the ligamentous complex. They lump all the lateral side together because it really doesn't matter if they have a Salter 1 or Salter 2 or an ankle sprain on the lateral side. What they worry about is their anterior tenderness or medial tenderness. And if there's anterior tenderness along the anterior joint line or medial tenderness, they get an x-ray. Um, so that's for kids, I think it was ages 5 to 12. And that was of more value in reducing x-rays than the auto ankle rules were. But again, I, I, I want to just sort of put up this little caveat that it's really important that these are just tools for who needs an x-ray. And in no way does this replace how to do an ankle exam, how to take a history, how to touch people and see where their pain is coming from and think of what's going on. So we sometimes get a little caught up in the tool. That's what we've done with the auto ankle rules. We just, we just apply the tool and we just touch the medial ankle and the lateral ankle or the fibula and the tibia. And we don't examine the ankle properly, look for these other clues. It, it's a trap that we have to actually be cognizant of so we don't repeat this again and again and again.
right. So we've already reviewed up to about minute 35 about general history and physical, the closed ring classification approach to predicting an unstable versus stable ankle injury, as well as the Weber B lat malfracture with medial involvement. Now it's time to review high ankle sprains and T-low fractures. So a syndesmosis injury or high ankle sprain is proximal to the ankle mortis where the tibia and fibula are connected by ligaments anteriorly. A high ankle sprain is not the way more common high-grade ankle lateral sprain, two totally different diagnoses. So the high ankle sprain is important not to miss because the treatment is often surgical. One common mechanism for a high ankle sprain is the one we've been talking about all podcasts long, and that's external rotation. And a clue that you can easily see just as the patient's entering the room is that the patient with a high ankle sprain tends to walk on their toes on the affected side. Again, don't forget to examine the anterior ankle just above the tibial plafond, because if you elicit tenderness there and nowhere else, you might be dealing with a high ankle sprain. And two key tests to help confirm a high ankle sprain diagnosis are one, the mid-fibular squeeze test that elicits pain at the distal tib-fib, which has a high specificity for syndesmosis injury, and pain on passive external rotation of the ankle, which mimics the injury mechanism. So these patients need x-rays that might be missed by the Ottawa ankle rules because sometimes you can confirm the diagnosis on x-ray by looking at the tibiofibular clear space, and there's sometimes associated fractures as well. If you suspect a high ankle sprain, the safe approach is to put the patient in a plaster of Paris back slab and have them non-weight bearing with crutches with tight follow-up with your orthopedic clinic. Remember, this is not the treatment for a lateral ankle sprain, which we talked about before. And for the preteen or teenager who has a story and physical exam that's making you think about syndesmosis injury, in this age group, you should be thinking and looking for T-low fracture on x-ray. Next, onto the Maisonneuve and de Poitrin's fractures. On to the next case. A 60-year-old man was running for the bus, and he slipped on an icy patch on the sidewalk. He describes his ankle giving out and complains again of diffuse ankle pain. On exam, he's tender and swollen over both medial and lateral malleoli. You send him for an x-ray, and you think that maybe his medial clear space is widened, and perhaps his tibiofibular syndesmosis space is off as well. So this sounds like a pretty worrisome case. Dr. Cial, what would you do next with this patient? Again, it goes back to mechanism, foot turning out. Sometimes when a patient slips on the ice, their one foot may slip forward. They fall backwards on their back leg, and that sort of takes the foot into external rotation. So again, trying to nail that detail down is very helpful. Typically, what do you see with an ankle injury? You see lateral pain and you usually don't see much medially. So if ever you see the opposite where you see medial discomfort and not much lateral, that's a red flag for usually a twisting injury. And then you've got to go hunting for sort of the higher fibular fracture. Sometimes that, that Weber C, so it's a, it's a fibular fracture that's above the level of the syndesmosis, can be seen on an ankle x-ray. Sometimes it's mid-fibula. Sometimes it's in the proximal third of the fibula. If it's the proximal third, it's called a Maisonneuve fracture. 
one of the pitfalls that we have sometimes, and a lot of the residents will know this, they'll come to emerge, oh yeah, the ankle exam starts at the knee. And they'll just feel the knee and then they'll go down and touch the ankle. But the fracture can come out anywhere along the length of the fibula. So you really need to be cognizant. You have to actually walk down the entire length of the fibula on the lateral side just to make sure that there isn't tenderness. Even if this patient is not tender along the fibula, if I heard this story, the medial discomfort, I've got uh, the tender over the syndesmosis area, uh, I'm going to order their tib fib as well as an ankle x-ray because sometimes you'll be surprised to find this subtle uh, occult fibular fracture. Well, that, that's a great pearl. So if you have a patient with a significant medial ankle injury, regardless of your physical exam, you're going to be palpating the fibula from the top right to the bottom. Uh, sometimes I suppose they can still have a, a fracture in the proximal fibula. I suppose it's because they've got so much pain in the ankle that they don't really register that that proximal pain. And in all those patients, you'll get an x-ray just to be sure that they don't have a, a proximal. For a twisting ankle injury, yes. I mean, if someone got hit by a hockey puck on the medial side of the ankle or direct trauma to the medial side of the ankle, I may not need to worry about X-raying higher. If there was a twisting ankle injury and they have medial pain and nothing lateral, that's a red flag for me. So again, pointing out the fact that it is not very common to have isolated deltoid ligament injuries. It's not very common. It's uncommon. You can get it, but it's uncommon. So if you get an isolated deltoid ligamentous injury, pay attention. Don't forget to palpate the fibula and make sure you don't have an associated syndesmotic injury. That's number one. Number two is don't expect when you palpate the fibula, the patient will jump up. It's not, it's, it is tender, but it's not as painful as other fractures. So mild tenderness can be the only sign presence, okay? It's not really, because other fractures, you've all seen it. You touch it, they jump up. But with this fracture, it's got a good coverage. It's a small bone. They're only minimally tender. Then, if you are suspicious, image it. So, Dr. Median, let's suppose that you miss the proximal or mid-fibular fracture and they're sent home, let's say, with the rice instructions and, and follow up with their family doctor or a foam walker and sent to the fa uh, fracture clinic, for example. What are the complications of a missed or delayed uh, Maisonneuve or Dupuytren's fracture? The problem with these are that most of these fractures, you've lost your lateral support. So when they start walking on it, most people will not be able to weight bear on it comfortably. They will recognize that there's something wrong unless they're chronic alcoholics or they're diabetics with neuropathy. Most people will definitely say, okay, there's something wrong. I can't walk on it. I need more attention. And they will definitely end up coming to the fracture clinic. So most people you, you will avert, they will themselves avert the disaster. Now, if they are missed in the group of patients we mentioned that they do not follow, and then you see them in a prolonged period of time, you will see that the talus has shifted significantly laterally. There's no congruency of the tibiotalar joint. And if you don't address it within very short period of time, they develop severe arthritis in their ankle joint. If you get them at the time where arthritis has not still established, they will need a complex surgery. You will have to go both medial, clear all the scar tissue from the medial side, go lateral, and reconstruct 
the syndesmotic ligament. It's a big procedure, and the results would have been far more simpler if they were addressed acutely. All right, so that comes to if you do identify uh, a mesa nerve fracture, for example, what would the ED management be? So if you have if you have a mesa nerve fracture, really what matters is whether the ankle shifted or not. If if the talus is sitting in anatomic position, there'd be posterior slab, non weight bearing. You know, you'd call orthopedics and say, when do you want to see them? Because the fix would be to put us a pair of syndesmosis screws across to hold on to it, to attach it. That would typically be the way that it would be treated. If it's overnight, you can just wait till the morning and talk to them or send the patient home. But just make sure they have, this is typically a surgical condition. So ortho should be aware of it, but we're totally fine to send them home as long as they have specific follow-up. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some of these patients put into, let's say they have a, a mesonerve. nerve. I've seen some of these patients put into a long leg back slab like right up to the proximal thigh. Uh, Other people, I just see, uh, you know, a regular back slab to below the knee. What's the preferred splint for these patients? I don't think a long leg cast is necessary for these patients because the amount of discomfort they have in their proximal fibula is minimal and immobilization above the knee adds no major value. Almost all of these patients need to go to the OR and they need a stress test in the OR And despite the belief in the past where we would just squeeze the fibula to the tibia and put two screws to stabilize the fibula to the tibia until the ligament heals, this has been shown not to be sufficient. Nowadays, the standard of treatment, most of the cases, you've got to open the syndesmotic area and make sure that your fibula is anatomically reduced in relationship to the tibia before you fire those syndesmotic screws. All right, let's review the Maisonneuve and De Poitrin's fractures. So for a twisting mechanism injury with medial pain or tenderness, more than lateral tenderness, think about a fibula fracture higher up. That's a Maisonneuve or De Poitrin's fracture. And palpate from the knee along the fibula all the way down to the ankle to try and elicit tenderness. Now, they may not be very tender at all, so you should probably order an X-ray of the entire tib-fib Either way, now if you do see a proximal fib fracture on x-ray, a below-knee backslab plaster of Paris splint with crutches is adequate. You don't need a full leg splint and have them follow up with orthopedics. The reason these are important not to miss is because these fractures are often associated with a medial ankle injury or syndesmosis injury that can be unstable and needs surgery. Next, Dr. Seal is going to describe the talus as the scaphoid of the ankle. One thing we haven't talked about yet is the talus and the calcaneus fractures that can sometimes really be difficult to see on x-ray. We sometimes miss these fractures that can have really significant outcomes. So I'll ask both of you, what are the most common talus and calcaneus fractures that are missed by emergency physicians? And what are some of the clues for some of these common missed talus and calcaneus fractures? 
Again, uncommon injuries tend to be commonly missed, so that's a, a regular theme. So just think about the mechanism. Calcaneal fractures, I think we all uh, appreciate that, okay, it's a fall from a height. Someone falls off a roof. I know to look for calcaneus. When you see one, always look at for the other one. About 8 or 10% are bilateral. Don't forget the, the force can also, like, sometimes the knees can be the hips. Certainly thoracic lumbar spine can be injured with it. So just think of the mechanism and where things can go. But it's not always a fall from like a ladder from 20 feet. Like it could be a 70-year-old person who just fell like three feet off a ladder or two feet because they have relative osteoporosis and osteopenia. So they have relatively weaker bones. So these get missed in the elderly because we don't hear the story and think of, oh, that's calcaneus because we think of calcaneus as falling from like 10 feet, 12 feet. But it can happen in the elderly, weaker bone with a smaller height. So just get used to feeling the calcaneus. When you examine them, just feel around the heel, cup your hands together and give a good squeeze to the calcaneus and give it consideration. The other part that when you actually load, the force can actually sometimes be taken out in the talus. And the talus, you can sometimes injure talar dome, which is an articular injury. You can have talar neck. Uh, and again, the palpation, you know, you can plantar flex the foot a little bit and just check, like examine the ankle, touch them on the anterior joint line. The auto anchor rules don't ask us to examine this area, but it's an important part to examine so that we know clinically where to look at the x-ray. Because sometimes like we had a case at North York where it was a pretty significant ankle, uh, a talus fracture. It was, it was smashed. Well aligned though. Didn't look like it wasn't badly displaced, uh, but it was comminuted. And and in retrospect, you look at it and you go, oh, who could miss it? But it's easy to miss it because we don't examine it. So, you know, we've hammered home over over and over again to examine the anterior ankle for syndesmosis injuries. Just when you are examining that anterior ankle for syndesmosis injuries, just go a little bit distal and, and examine that talus as well. Agree. We all know every time we see a wrist injury, we're like, don't miss scaphoid because scaphoid has a poor blood supply and it has a, a difficult time healing, all kinds of complications. The talus is essentially the scaphoid of the ankle. Terrible blood supply. There's no muscles that attach to it, covered in articular cartilage. So it has a very hard time healing. And if we miss that injury and emerge, that gets the patient, no pun intended, off on the wrong foot. And they're going to end up with a lot of difficulty down the road. Uh, so it's really like, again, you know, it's, it's an emerge mentality of, of what to look for, but you got to know how it, how it presents and what the story is like and what the exam is like. And then you'll go look at the x-ray with a little more confidence. The other one that's uncommon, commonly missed is a lateral Tailless fracture, lateral process of the tail is called a snowboarder's fracture. It's like a lateral sprain mimic. They're sore on the lateral side. It looks like an ATF sprain. And we kind of say, yeah, it's just a sprain. We don't pay attention to it. And again, just think about mechanism. When someone's snowboarding, they're in a boot. And when they land a jump, they can't invert their ankle like you do playing basketball or tennis or coming off of a curb because you're in a boot. And when you land a jump, you actually just, you can shear off the lateral process of the tail. So be hesitant to make the diagnosis of a lateral ankle sprain in somebody who's in a boot. That's exceedingly uncommon because their foot doesn't invert like a typical ankle sprain does. The final point is if you have suspicion, you have a test. It's called a CT scan. So you can always CT it. You CT more hips than ever nowadays in the emergency department. You can add a couple of CTs if you have suspicion about a tailor injury because the talus is something hard to see on plain x-ray, especially the processes of the talus. So I think it's reasonable nowadays with availability of CT, quick CT sections that can be done if you have suspicion of a tailor injury. Definitely in terms, uh, apart from examination, plain imaging, a CT scan can definitely be helpful. So Taylor fractures either are missed in the context of MVAs because the attention goes to the chest, the attention goes to the femur, the attention goes to the hip, 
and it has been shown that the fractures around the foot or ankle are commonly missed, specifically the talus, the calcaneus. So that's one perspective that it gets missed, and it is quite common. The other perspective is it can happen in the context of more subtle injuries, specifically in osteoporotic patients. So these are the two most common case scenarios where they get missed. Or slash, if you have fractures involving the processes of the talus, but the patient continues to be symptomatic with the diagnosis of an ankle sprain. If an ankle, if a patient has been diagnosed with a lateral ankle sprain and is still symptomatic four to six weeks after that lateral ankle sprain should have resolved, then it's not a lateral ankle sprain. You should definitely rule out associated injuries to the talus or calcaneus. So let's review here some of the commonly missed calcaneus and talus fractures. For calcaneus fractures, the ones that are missed are the ones in older patients who fall from a small height instead of the typical huge fall from a 10-foot ladder or something like that. One way of thinking of the talus is to think of it as the scaphoid bone of the ankle. Just like when you see a wrist injury, you should always check the scaphoid. For an ankle injury, you should always check the talus. The common situations in which talus fractures are missed include, one, patients who injure their ankle in a boot or skate. Number two, patients who are in an MVC and have a distracting injury. Number three, older patients with osteoporosis. And lastly, number four, patients who are diagnosed with an ankle sprain and come in a few weeks later complaining of ongoing pain. Before we wrap up, gentlemen, are there any other ankle injury pearls or pitfalls uh, that you think our listeners need to know about? Uh, I think we're pretty good at picking up Achilles, but again, get used to the Achilles ruptures, examining them properly, listening to their story, and as a routine, you know, just feeling along posteriorly, feeling for the gap. The gap typically tends to be a few centimeters above the insertion of the Achilles, relatively poor blood supply. If they're quite sore over the heel and they look like they have an Achilles injury, take an x-ray. Sometimes they have also a piece of bone, especially in older patients who have osteoporosis and they're more likely to pull off a piece of bone. That certainly changes management. I think most of most of the people who listen will be are aware of the fact that there is now non-operative management for Achilles. The problem that sometimes occurs is it's not recognized that non-operative management uh, implies though there is a specific protocol for how these are managed. Non-operative management isn't a foam walker and they can wait bearers tolerated. So out of eMERGE, if you see somebody with an Achilles injury, they need to be, again, like in the right treatment as soon as they leave eMERGE, which is putting the foot into equinus, which is plantar flexion, trying to decrease the gap and help the approximation uh, of the Achilles. Uh, allowing their foot to be in neutral or certainly, you know, letting them weight bear, contract on their gastrox and keeping pulling on it. This will not aid in healing at all. So there's a very specific prescribed non-operative management for Achilles ruptures uh, that needs to be followed from day one in eMERGE. If we're a week late, 10 days late by the time you get to ortho, they're sliding more from the non-operative to the operative side. I see. So if you suspect an Achilles tendon tear, the big pitfall would be just putting them in a foam walker because those patients, a lot of those patients would be non-operative if you put them in uh, plantar flexion. If you put them in the foam walker, they may end up needing surgery when they might not have in the first place. Sure. I think despite the fact that we are aware of Achilles tendon 
injuries, they still get missed. So again, examination, examination. One of the exa- one of the findings that physicians might not pay attention to, just looking at the natural resting position of the ankle is helpful. If you examine it, you will see that the ankle that has an Achilles tendon injury is definitely more dorsiflex compared to the natural position of the contralateral ankle. Apart from doing the Thompson test, which we all know about, the squeeze test, which we all know about in terms of uh, feeling the gap, but just looking at it, sometimes you can easily appreciate that difference in the resting position of the ankle to the contralateral side. I love that. It's the head of the bed diagnosis. Yeah, exactly. Just, I mean, even if you you know put them on their belly, you can see the difference. The side that is torn is definitely more dorsiflex than the side because there is no tone to the Achilles tendon. Mm-hmm. That's number one. Number two is it's simple. When you diagnose an Achilles tendon tear, just put a dorsal slap, non-weight bearing, and gravity equinus. That's it. As simple as that. Give them a pair of crutches. Tell them to be non-weight bearing until they see the orthopedic surgeon. Now, in Canada, I know that this podcast is not necessarily for Canada. In Canada nowadays, the standard of treatment of Achilles tendon ruptures is non-surgical. While in the United States of America, they still operate on it more or less. So there might be some difference of opinion, but by this way of treatment in the emergency department, you give the option to the orthopedic surgeon to have a discussion with the patient, go over the pros and cons of each, and make both of them make a decision whether they want to proceed with operative versus non-operative management. All righty. So just a few key take-home points we've talked about in this podcast I think the biggest one, if you can take away any single take-home point, is that any external rotation mechanism is a red flag for badness, for syndesmosis injuries, for Tilot injuries, talus injuries, deltoid injuries, Maisonneuve injuries, uh, and all of these may require surgery. The second key take-home point is that you need to examine the anterior ankle. Uh, If they have anterior ankle tenderness, uh, around the syndesmosis. You've got to assume a syndesmosis injury or a TLO injury in the right age. If it's a little bit distal to that, then you got to be thinking about a talus injury. Always examine the medial ankle to assess for medial malleolus slash deltoid injuries. And if there is any medial tenderness, make sure to examine the entire fibula for a Maisonneuve or a Depoitrin's fracture And even if there's no significant tenderness there, you might want to consider doing a tib-fib x-ray. If you do suspect a talus or calcaneus fracture and the x-ray is not giving you the answer, a CT is is a reasonable next step. And then finally, even though in Canada presently, most Achilles tendon ruptures can be treated non-operatively, that doesn't mean you just put them into a foam walker. Uh, You still need to treat them appropriately from the beginning which is putting them not weight-bearing in plantar flexion and a back slab cast. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Sayal, Dr. Median. Your words of wisdom, uh, all these great pearls and pitfalls are something that I think our listeners will really take home and can use on their next shift. Thanks for joining us again on EM Cases. Thank you. Thanks for having us. 
So Dr. Cial, I, I've heard a rumor that your great casted course, which has been touring across Canada for years now and is generally accepted as the emergency department ortho course to go to. I understand uh, that you might be offering some courses south of the border uh, in the States. Is that true? Well, there's a possibility. I think starting in 2018, we'll hopefully uh, make our way there. We've had a number of Americans who've come up to take the course in Canada and have been very gracious in their comments. Thanks to your podcast, uh, just to let you know, a listener heard your podcast from Scotland, and we're actually going to Scotland in April of 2018 uh, because of EM cases. So well done to you, uh, Dr. Helman. You're doing a phenomenal job. Uh, it's an honor for for both of us, I think. Yeah, for me too. I mean, for, I've been for very us to be happy. a part of this, um, we, we, I think you know, I can tell you for sure I learn as I teach and you, you help us to sort of see things in a clearer way. So congrats to you on what you're doing. It's really, really amazing work. Thank you for having us. Thank you.